Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Welcome to this episode of the Canon Law Society of America podcast series. I'm your host, Donna Miller, the executive coordinator of the CLSA. Well, here we are today talking with Monsignor Fred Easton, a priest of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis and a member of the Canon Law Society of America for our record, say, 50 years ago this year. So welcome, Monsignor Easton. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't, I had not done the <laughs> math on that one. That yeah. is good. So. That is great. So we're happy. Probably would be that. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it says that 1970 people can do that math, but that's when our records show that you joined the society. So, that's but right. it was 17 years ago that you found out that you would be the recipient of the Roll of Law Award at our annual convention that October 2003. And I went back and read the talk that you gave that night, uh, and it is posted on our CLSL, CLSA website, and I will link it to this podcast so people can reread it later. But you reflected on the title of the award and what it means to talk about the mm-hmm. role of law in the church and in ministry. So can you take us back a little bit to the study, when you studied canon law and any memories that you have of your first years sure. as a member of the CLSA? Yes. Yes, I can do that. I, uh, it was a, I can remember it was probably late winter, maybe early spring, but probably late winter of 1967. I was ordained on May 1, 66, and my first assignment with a, with a great pastor, now deceased, and in Bedford, Indiana, not far from Bloomington, where I now live. And, um, I picked up the phone. He was a he he had a heart problem, angina, so he was taking a little nap after lunch. And I grabbed the phone quickly so he wouldn't be disturbed. Well, that was the phone call that started my life change. It was a call from Monsignor Charles Coster, who really was running the tribunal as the tribunal secretary. They call it secretary of the tribunal. We would call it chancellor of the tribunal today, probably, or the Rota would. And they anyhow. Uh, he was the one that really ran things, and, uh, and and everyone knew he was probably the smartest priest in the archdiocese. He could, uh, you know, he was his Latin capacity was fantastic, much better than mine ever became. But uh, you could emulate it. But anyhow, he said, Archbishop wants you to come to work at the tribunal and go to Rome to study canon law. Whoa! I almost had to fall down at that point. So I was standing up, I remember, by the desk. And uh, so, well, can I think about it? So I thought, thought about it a week and said yes. And as they say, the rest is history. But then it wasn't long. It was certainly in May that I came up to Indianapolis to live at St. John's Parish, where the tribunal was located next to it. It was on that property in those days. And I lived in St. John's for the summer. I was doing the internship, basically, at the tribunal, getting to know, basically kind of developing the questions in your mind and doing some things, and even doing some, uh, even wrote, uh, kind of uh, kind of did a uh, draft of a, a sentence in a, um, in a documentary case, I remember, a few of those and other things, and also kind of, uh, going through the files and getting rid of thank you notes and 
kind of putting them in order. So I learned the sequence of cases that way, how they should be. So that was my summer. And then I was off to Rome in the fall. And it was kind of amazing. The chancery people there who were paying the bills. Oh, you should go by ship. What? So anyhow, I did. So I took the train from Indianapolis. The Pennsylvania Railroad was working in those days for passenger travel. So to Penn Station, New York, I had a, a theology classmate. I did theology, St. Mary's in Baltimore. And I, a theology classmate uh, from Brooklyn met me at the, air, at the train station. We prearranged this by letters, you know, where this is the days of snail mail was it, you know. And we didn't, long distance phone calls were a little bit of a rarity too. But in any event, um, he met me, we did a little, you know, checking out the Museum of Modern Art and got a ticket for a off-Broadway production that evening. And the next day I took the taxi to the to, to the uh, ship, the US the, you know, the, the USS Constitution. It's American lines. So and it's just like in the movies, they throw the streamers, the whole thing. So that's how I went. Uh, I did uh, experience a little seasickness. So I uh, didn't get the Dramamine down in time. So finally I went to the sick bay and they used the other orifice that works very well. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and we, on the way over, we stopped at a couple of places. We stopped at uh, uh, Gibraltar for, for a few hours and I did not take a piece of the rock, however. And then I got <laughs> off for a full day at Mallorca and then docked at at Naples. And it turns out there's another guy coming to Rome from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, who was going to study canon law. And we we corresponded and he met and we met there. His ship came in after mine. He was on the Italian line. And Father uh, Dick Bucignani was his name. And uh, there was another priest in tow with him from the diocese in uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota. Father Jim Rausch, later the Archbishop of Phoenix, also the secretary for the USCCB one time. So uh, so we piled around in Naples for a few days and then headed up to Rome. And the so it was getting acquainted with living outside the country. That was very exciting. And the first time in St. Peter's was for the opening mass of the first synod of bishops. I think I mentioned that in my talk because I looked over the talk, and um, and that was uh, and that's true. And actually, I'll have to say, have you looked over the talk? I wouldn't change a word. If that's that's kind of maybe significant, <laughs> I wouldn't change a word of it. Great. I think it's, it's. I still agree with that. Everything I said there, and uh, so. Anyhow, that's, I began studies, and uh, the Chancery people, that would be our VG and Monsignor Costa, the head of the tribunal, really, said, oh, why don't you wait till you get to Rome to pick the university? Because I was going to be over there early. So people might not do that today, but I did then. (laughs) So uh, I uh, found out where most people were going. They're going to be doing tribunal work, and it was at the Lateran in those days. More Roman Curie people teaching there in those days. Things have changed over the years. You know. 
So, uh, so, but it was good. It, classes were taught in Latin, with one exception. Our professor of uh, Roman law was a layman, uh, Professor Professore Lombardi. He taught in Italian. But unfortunately, it was my first year. My Italian wasn't as good as it eventually became, <laughs> which I count as my best second language, the modern language, anyhow. So, um, but anyhow, it was Latin. I get on okay. You know, we're taking notes because they had. In those days in the seminary, I had I had seven years of Latin. So, oh my goodness! Yes, but not you know, but it wasn't taught as a language. It was taught as Latin trains the mind. Oh come on, <laughs> that's one thing I disagreed with in hindsight. No, Latin's <laughs> a language. Period. <laughs> uh, but um, so uh, many I learned a lot, and uh, professors were. We did have one Monsignor Andreas Breed taught. But we're talking 17 code, you see, remember. So uh, this is before we're still, although the code commission is beginning already, uh, but we're still long ways away in 67, 68, 69, those years I was in Rome, before we had a new code. But um, anyhow, the uh, Professor Breed was funny. He was from Lyon, and uh, he would begin his, he would begin his, uh, a sentence in French, alors, and then we'd go into Latin, then he would end in Italian. So <laughs> that would be kind of characteristics. <laughs> but we had, some, we had some good people. Um, and uh, I remember our procedural law man would be important for Kai going to be, he's going to be doing marriage case work and tribunal work. So uh, Father Zacharias Peralta got captioned whom we thought probably was an understudy of Cardinal Roberti. It was Cardinal Roberti who did a work on, on procedural law. Uh, and uh, he was quite good. I, I liked him. Uh, our uh, general norms was Father Peter Tocanel, a, Fra a conventional Franciscan. So I remember many of their names still. So, uh, and then when we got to and this is how things have changed. We've got, when we got to penal law, oh, we'll never use that. And wouldn't exactly. it be better, I said to, to myself and others, wouldn't it be better just to read Dostoevsky, you know, <laughs> Crime and Punishment? <laughs> so as I say, I lived to rue the day I say that said that. Yeah. And um, I didn't think, oh, we'll never use canonization law. Uh, I was the I was the bishop's delegate to investigate the miracle attributed to Mother Theodore Garrett, the founder right. of the Sisters of Providence. So yes. some days some days I've used penal law and canonization law the same day. All right. So so things have changed, but it, it was a good time in Rome. I did some different things. One of my guys ahead of me at the ladder and getting his doctorate. See, he encouraged me our second year to join him, and we would audit the rural studium, the first session, the first cycle. So that means cutting classes at the Lateran. So, so well, I did that, but that was interesting to do. We had um, we had procedural law again with uh, uh, Monsignor Pina, who was at that time the promoter of justice, the signature, and probably the architect of. Um, of Pope of Pope, uh, Pope Paul VI's reform of the Curia Regimini, 
and that's what we think he was. And actually, my buddy who encouraged me to join him with this was doing his, dis his doctoral dissertation on rejuvenate. So I heard, heard a lot about it from him and just walking around and going to dinner together and all that stuff. So we learned, you learn so much outside of the classroom, lots outside. The exactly. Classroom. So, and uh, we even, <laughs> we were invited to go to a oral discussion, a live oral discussion at the Rhoda. So that was interesting. And, you know, it was, uh, we were standing along the wall over a wide angle lens, you know, we say, but it was, you know, the advocates were there in their robes, the notary and the defender of the bond, and then the three Rodal judges on the raised dais in their red and ermine. So it was quite a picture. <laughs> the case was, I still remember what it was. It was, I don't know how it came out, but it was a fourth instance, mind you, separation case out of Spain, which had no divorce skirts. And that's the reason. So it was all about the money, I'm sure. So um, you know, that, that was a unique experience. So, and uh, the summertime, I didn't come home. Most guys come home now. I did studied French for a month in Grenoble because I was going to use a French secondary source to work on my Tessina, the licensed paper. And the money house in in Wakalique. And as men. And then, um, so two of us did that at the University of Grenoble. So it was total immersion. Wow. Worked for a month, month, and some touring about. Ended up helping out in the parish at the end of, towards the end of the summer in London for a few, several weeks. And uh, included being a hospital chaplain at the, at the famous children's hospital in there, in the center of, of, of London. And then toured with a, a Milwaukee priest who was visiting his German relatives before we went back to Rome. So anyhow, that's uh, that's uh, great. That's the, that was quite a exposure to you know, and I tended to do that, and I tried to learn the Italian language as best I could on my own. I learned it, as I say, by osmosis. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's probably the best way, as always. So. Uh, I didn't pass up any experience, including the option of, in 68, of taking the, the Biblicum always had a Easter tour to the Holy Land for their students, but they usually had plenty of room for others. I went, so the price was good, too. How about $300 once you got to Tel Aviv? That's not bad. Concluded <laughs> everything. Yes. <laughs> so um, that was quite, you couldn't do that today. No, uh, that's it a bargain. Time to go. Yeah, you, 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 we couldn't have done the things today that you could mm -hmm. do then because that was right after the Six Day War. So mm -hmm. it was pretty quiet, pretty quiet. And we did not to places you can't get to now. So apparently. So, so anyhow, that was uh, the add on that I thought was probably the most significant. But then coming back, I was, uh, my first assignment was notary at the tribunal. We didn't have lay notaries then. That was before that time, so that's another thing. But then, um, uh, what else? Well, the and then of course that's '69. I get back, and you know what happens the next July of '70. Not only do I become a member of the Canton Law Society that year, that's the year 
the approval of the American procedural norms. Uh -huh. Remember that? So yeah, that made a real difference in tribunals. And you had the dispensation from appeal, which happened most times, not always. And um, but I was notary, but I was a ghost writer for two defenders of the bond. That was where most of my heavy, heavy lifting was. So uh, yeah. So uh, and that continued on till I was 76. I was named uh, vice of each Alice and um, was doing then I was starting to do cases and interview people and you know and uh, um, have meetings of judges and all of that you see and um, so uh, then that, Mons that Monsignor Coster that I mentioned but by that time by the time I got back from Rome was already the the officialis later called the judicial vicar so um, and then 77 June, he has a cardiac arrest. I end up being kind of like the head of the tribunal without without the uh, without the title from that point on. So I had been a part-time associate at a parish, but with that coming on, eventually I said, "This isn't." After about six months, I realized I really can't carry the water on both shoulders. I can't focus very well. So I spoke with the pastor. He was fine to be just to be in residence. And the Archbishop, then it was Archbishop Biscop. And he said, I was about ready to call you in to suggest that you become in residence <laughs> only. So that was that was the media of minds was good there. So and then and then um, May of 80, the Archbishop Omera was then the Archbishop. And May 5 at Beta, he named me the officialis, later to be later known as the JV, you know. So, and then our offices eventually moved in 82 to their present location, right across the street from the cathedral. So, and then, so as you get into the work, eventually the, it's not till of course around the time of the, uh, the uh, essential norms coming on that, we are getting engaged more in the penal stuff and administrative law, administrative things going on too. So uh, there were meetings of Midwest people meeting in Chicago with the Chicago canonists and a few others from around the, the area that began a kind of a group that actually spawned uh, some education through the kind of law society for people who are going to be advocates or in other roles in this. That, so that particular group was the or the origin of that group of seven, I think it was, that we did two rounds of of um, of uh, three or four days uh, workshop sessions. And one was in San Antonio, and then we did one at um, in Chicago at the at the seminary. So we did that twice. Uh, Rick Bass of Happy Memory was the chair of that group. So uh, and that included Rick and Paul Golden was very important to that, given the fact that he was a professional educator. And then uh, Dan Smolanik, Pat Lagus, Jerry Jorgensen, and me. So that that's how that got going. And uh, so, and I think I, I see a continuous line 
right up now to the to the webinar things that, that we're doing because yeah that was sort of my push we did the pre-convention workshop and then subsequent to that the committee recommended the the, the clergy committee recommended the webinar approach we're trying to figure out a less expensive way to get the job done and uh, so that's what's going on so that sort of, sort of brings you up to date as from yes. as, I, as I see it this is this this is my vision of the whole experience so things have changed mm -hmm. we're into penal law we're into dealing with uh, you know, what are the legitimate you know executives act acts of governance and, and we're dealing with you know are these being done correctly or not that's all that's is out there right now so I think you're right in in your in your talk because it happened right around what 2003 right after the 2001 right, right, uh, exactly. impetus and and you had said the magnitude of sexual abuse of minors by clergy and its effects upon the image of the church sad to say has given a definition to our present times do you think it is still defining things now I'm afraid it is. I think it is still doing that. And of course, now we've moved up to to bishops, so we say, and yeah. cardinals, you know. So, uh, and I think that's uh, that's, and it's not only it's not it's not only sex abuse of minors as we know. It's any mis any serious misconduct that could be failure to to do to do things so abuse of office by way by, by by way of failure of by bishops or by positive actions if they're engaged in the kinds of behaviors we heard about with the, the former cardinal of washington dc <laughs> and uh and that and uh but however in the end i heard he really got caught on sex abuse of minors see so and i and yeah. That's it. So, but also, penal law is is something you know. I maybe need to go back and add in some things here now because when I realized that we did not take seriously a, a good time to study penal law when I was doing penal law studies professionally, I retired from office in 2011 and uh moved to moved down here to bloomington in the fall of that year october 2 and i discussed with my spiritual director a monk of saint mindred about you know maybe i would like to do some sort of study sabbatical what would it be and then i realized oh it has to be this it has to be penal law and penal process so and this is interesting uh, how how that all developed too. Um, the um, oh, I, so I talked with a few people, and one was now Bishop Dealey, before he was bishop, and he was we were on the bog at the same time. So I know we knew each other for a long time. He recommended, having been over in Rome, he says, if you go to Rome, don't sign up for any classes. What you do, you interview people go to take them to dinner talk with them that's what you do have your questions do that do do these chats with them so 
I followed his advice pretty, pretty much, but I also added in, thanks to Archbishop Hebda, I got in to, to, to review the Octa, or to review the archives of, of that legislative texts on the formation of the penal law penal process. So I spend the mornings there pretty much. So, uh, and uh, so that was, that that was good. They they provided me with a room I could use even. So now what they so, do there they, pardon me. No, I was just going to say when you were doing those interviews, then did you was that just to give you direction, or did you use those for note taking purpases, or did oh, you well, use them for note taking purposes <laughs> when I got back home? Oh yeah, oh. I took notes, and maybe I should read you the list of the oh, nineteen okay. people I interviewed. That would be okay. fascinating. And I'll begin them in the chronological order because I have a spreadsheet with that, actually. <laughs> Turns out, or a, a Microsoft chart. Monsignor Punderson was the first one. Then Father Aidan McGrath, whom I knew very well from the Great Britain and Ireland Kind of Law Society, who was then the sec secretary for the whole Franciscan order. And Monsignor Bacafola was just winding up in Rome. And Monsignor Dick Sozeman was working at clergy. And then upon the recommendation of Monsignor John Kennedy, who is, still works at CDF, and uh, who usually used to be in charge of the marriage case section, but now is the head of the discipline section. But anyhow, he recommended that I interview Claudio Papare, who works at the congregation, a layman, uh, who is a lay, who is a, a avocado, but he's also a canonist and teaches uh, penal law at the Urbanianum. So, and who has written that, he's written a commentary on penal process, which I have, as well as his formulario, these formularies. So, so when I met with them, I had him autograph them for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you remember the book in Italian, the Sanctions in the Church by uh, De Paulus and Cito. Uh, okay. You may or may not remember that. Anyhow, but I met with Father Davide Cito. He actually came over to where I was staying. I was staying on the Via dello Scrofa, and it now is known as the Domus Internazionalis Paolo Sextus, used to be known as the Casa Internazionale del Clero. Okay. And uh, so he came over, and we talked most of the afternoon. So that was re really good. And then went to dinner one, went to supper one night with Father Bob Geisinger, who was then Procurator General uh, for the Jesuits. Okay. And just before he was going back to Malta as their auxiliary bishop, Monsignor Shakluna, he, okay. he was still the pro, still promoter at the congregation. And then there was a the the, pre, the Polish priest who taught penal law originally at the Lateran, but now was teaching it at the Antonianum, Father Zuczeki. And then having known him from before, Monsignor Brian Firm, I went up to Venice and uh, arranged that I would meet, meet with Brian Firm. So, and I happened to see that my first night at the, at the Domus, I was leaving the restaurant, leaving the, uh, the dining room. I saw some people I knew from the Great Britain and Ireland Convention, people. So I went back and talked with them. Wow. So we sat and chat, chat. He said, oh, let's go for a drink afterwards. So we did. And 
I mentioned I wanted to go up to Venice. He says, oh, you need to contact um, brother so-and-so at the um, Abbasia di San Giorgio Maggiore on that island out there. Because he, so I stayed up there for free for about four nights. Not bad. Price was right. <laughs> <laughs> Another bargain. So, <laughs> real bargain. And the weather was good in November. Imagine that. So uh, we had sunny days, really good. I had great pictures too, but met with Bronson and Brian Firm a couple of times and uh, met him uh, right out in front of, uh, he was living in the, in the palace belonging to the, to the, um, the, Arch the, uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Venice, you know, the Patriarch of Venice. So, so we, I met him up there. We did a, a, a quickie back backdoor tour of San Marco and the and the Palladoro. Oh, nice! Nice for free. <laughs> <laughs> and then he took me underneath the to the um, uh, the, pal the, the palace where the there's obviously boats come in un underneath. That's where they take the the uh, the patriarch out in boats to do confirmations right. in various places. It was interesting. Fascinating. And then we had a drink in his room upstairs. Then we went for walked over to a restaurant that he knew about, and we had had, had dinner. And then next day I met him for lunch and for continuing chats uh, at the Marchana, where he where he was the president of the Marchana in those days. So, um, so that was good. Had a good time. Then back in Rome, Monsignor Sable, whom I knew for a long time, and then um, I had come across him in some readings. Father Damian Ostigata, who was teaching uh, penal law at the at the Gregorian. So I had an interview with him. I did uh, apologize. I remember when I was after I we talked. I said. Find out later he knows English pretty well. He said, I said, I said, I apologize for my Italian. Well, it did, it did sound a little Dante like. <laughs> <It was old. laughs> and I've known Cardinal Burke forever, but we may not be in the same page in many areas. Yeah, that could be true of many people. But um, but anyhow, very friendly man. Very, I always liked him as a person. He was classmate to two of my to our fellow priests here in the archdiocese. They were they were in Rome together at the at the hill. So I had Pranzo at his at his apartment one day. I mean, that's how I had my conversation with him. And then I actually had an interview with Cardinal De Paulis in his place who he lived in the um in the uh, the palazzo santo Fizio. and uh so and and then monsignor jager you know of him of course the road then monsignor Mackay of happy memory the scotsman he was very interesting and of all of the rodal judges at the time he was probably the had, had probably more experience with non-marriage case things that the rota did so he had a lot of experience in that area and then Monsignor Joaquin Yobel at the Santa Croce. And then two people by phone, Bishop Giorgio Corbellini, and then Cardinal Hartz. So that was, so I was actually looking for some of these, these phone ones were because I was 
couldn't find something in the in the archives. The strange thing, uh, and um, I looked looked high and low, but the discussions in the archives on the of the committee on penal law ended in June of seventy seven. Now remember. We had a long ways to go before we even had this game of 80. See? Correct. So yes. what's going on here? So one of the things I was I got focusing on was the legitimacy of when can you use the extrajudicial process? And up until they were discussing it in 77, it was still required grave causes. Well, all of a sudden without any explanation. It's just causes only in the scheme of 80, and there's no further discussion. I was, um, um, I'm, the last day I was there in, in Rome, and in the, in the Pontifical Council doing archive work was, I wanted to thank um, the Bishop Secretary, uh, Bishop um, O, name things sometimes, forget who the bishop secretary is at the time. But anyhow, very friendly, very helpful. It'll come to me. But anyhow, it's, um, I told him about this lacuna. His eyes got wide as saucers. And he said, oh. So he got the real, the, the lay archivist. And we went down and looked at the original Octa to see if there was anything after 77. And there was not. So it's a mystery. I even emailed uh, Monsignor Greens, still living. I, we were, he was in Rome doing his, getting his doctorate when I was starting to study in Rome. But anyhow, so I've known him forever, even went to his dissertation defense. But um, I, he, he commented, hey, maybe you should let Dan Brown know, maybe a father for a new novel. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> I know. And so that is still the mystery. Uh, that is the formation. So I was the kind of law society of Great Britain and Ireland knew that I had been in Rome doing my during a uh, and also I spent I should should have mentioned earlier I did four months before going to Rome in the in the spring of seven of 2012 at Catholic U doing. There, the library was where I was spending my time, and also talking with some of the profs, including well, uh, uh, Dr. Ken Pennington, the medievalist, because I was interested in the medieval formation of lots of things. Still am. Yes. That's one of that's one of my interests. So, um, mm -hmm. so anyhow, that sort of prepared me then to do the Rome study, frankly, and um, so um, the. Um, but it ended up that that the uh, their program people for the Ken Law Society of Britain in Ireland wanted me to give a talk, which was a very nice honor. So in 2014, when the convention was in Harrogate, in England, um, I gave a talk on the formation on the legislative history of the canon, which says when you can use the extrajudicial process. So I brought up this lacuna. And uh, also pointing out that even there was discussions. The thing about reading the the 
the archives is that the names are in there. Whereas when they put, publish it in Comunicaciones, they sanitize it. Aha, that makes a big difference. It does, yeah. Uh -huh. Well, one of them was that there was a discussion. I noticed that there was someone said that the the extrajudicial and the judicial process should be a, have equal privilege in in law. Well, the mo, one one of the fathers of the of the committee said that, and the rest of them hooted him down. It looked sounded like he said, "No way." Well, the one that was pushing for the Equal Ure was Castillo Lara. Imagine that. Later, the president of the thing. So, right. my one, my my suspicion is, I wonder what, how he influenced the change from from grave to just causes. I don't know. One might one, one might sure. wonder. But uh, so it's still kind of a mystery why there's no octa. And we may never know. <laughs> We really will never know, so I, I don't know what's what's going on there. But anyhow, that was my my talk, and at the okay. end of the talk, I got uh, you you know of Ann Aslan, of course. Yes. Former dean at St. Paul's. Yes. She came up and says, "Oh, may we publish your talk in studio? Oh, you could knock me over with a feather." <laughs> <laughs> so we did. <clears throat> yes. It is in the last number of 2014 actually on you know, that oh. particular talk so anyhow so that's uh, great that's and great. then john rankin even referenced it in his big book on penal process that he did yeah so, so i'm in that one so well, um we're looking forward to the penal law series that you're helping to prepare i think that's going to be a huge resource for members of the society and we will offer it to um outside of the society for those who perhaps want to get up to date, if you will, because so much has happened in that field since the early part of this century. Oh, yes, exactly. One thing I did have the op operator, the possibility of doing was in the end of 2011, I just got moved in here and I heard from um, Javon Fairbank that the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the kind of law, you know, the Committee of the USCCB yes. had the had the copy of the, that current draft of the new book six, and I gave a review of it for them. Oh, so, uh, so I did. You're that. ahead of us then. <laughs> We're waiting for that to come. <laughs> well, this is the 2011 version. We've been okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, We're so all we don't pins and needles. We don't. We don't know. And I thought there should be more work done. I actually have said that. Okay. And, um, so. Um, uh, so, so I've been immersed in penal law and administrative law, and little less in marriage. Although I mm -hmm. still do, I still do marriage cases in second instance mostly. So. I could tell you that when I was practicing civil law, and I only did about two years of it, half the time as a defender, public defender, and then half the time on the prosecutor side, and that was enough of that dark side of. I moved on to a different kind of law adoptions and and things but then I went to study canon law myself but that's a that's a tough field to really be in so you are to be commended for um, for for sticking with it and being as you said in your talk willing and finding it necessary to learn more to delve to research to not just sit mm. back and say 
you know, there's nothing more to be done. Yes, and I think one of your questions that you sent on the email was, what, what advice do I have to young candidates? Yes. And I would say, it's, it's in my talk, but I also want to underscore it, remain a student of the law. Yes. And I would have great big underlining caps on that, because I think you don't want to just simply be a, just quick, get quick answers and for, because sometimes people give an answer by looking at one canon, whereas they miss the whole big picture. And you can't miss the big picture. You've got to look at general norms occasionally, you know. Correct. <laughs> yes. <be> rather important. <laughs> That's right, and it all, it has to be. You can't take anything in isolation like that when it comes to any any area of law and within the code. And you had mentioned philosophy and history as being essential to um, yes. and relevant in the context of learning. So it's it's a very much a multidisciplinary approach, just as uh, right. Yeah, you know, and that's why I'm I'm interested in uh, as you was if you I'm not sure if you've seen. Some of the things I said in the my introductory webinar, but I was talking, I was doing, giving a little bit of a history, canonical history of the procedures within that, based on my study of medieval law. So, right. So, and you I mentioned that resources. Uh, Professor uh, Pennington was, he's involved with the the, can, the medieval canon law congress, which was supposed right. to be held this summer in. Uh, St. Louis and I really wanted to go, but they've, they, I think they've canceled that now because they only do it about every four years or so. And, yeah, uh, so, a lot of things are canceling. And, right, sure. yeah, at this point in time. So, um, yeah, so maybe they'll reschedule it. I, I think they said I maybe next so. year because I had wanted maybe. to go. I thought it was fascinating, the, the whole concept. Um, some people would say, as you said, you can't isolate not only within the different, uh, such as philosophy, law, and things, but you also in time, we, we don't live in a vacuum. We have to know history, as they say, you know, you're destined to repeat it if you don't know your history. Interesting in that in that medieval history business that just a curiosity was on board ship going to Rome. I was walking around one day, and in those days as a young guy, you you know, these days I would probably be in Mufti most of the time. But uh -huh. no, not those days, I was in my you know, clericals all the time. As one man came up and introduced himself, Father, where are you going? So I'm going to Rome studying kind of law. I said, oh, I'm a canonist too. Well, oh, it was wow. it was the famous James Brundage, uh -huh. medievalist. Are you okay. you've heard of him? I've heard the name in in the medieval yes, right canon law. The medieval canon yes, law. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. Search James Brundage. Yes. Well. His, his younger son eventually became a priest and a canonist too, Tom, Tom Brundage. Okay. And so I asked Tom one time about this, explained to him, well, how old were you? I was probably about five. Real <laughs> 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 kid running around on the deck. And he said that we were on our way to Spain. My dad had a teaching position and was going to be doing research in Spain for a few years. So they were on their way to Spain by ship. So, so he was steeped in canon law uh, from, from way is. back. <laughs> from way back. So. But anyhow, it's interesting. But I got uh, Brundage's book on marriage in the Middle Ages. I have, that's a good book, almost a must read. And then there mm. is the book, his, his last book. And, and Tom said this would be his monum opus, was entitled The Medieval Origins of the Legal Profession. 
It's a really good read. So you might you might want to read that one. It must be a thick volume. <laughs> I'm not too too thick. <laughs> <laughs> you get through it in a size. couple. <laughs> pretty good size though. Yes. And uh, I've even loaned it out to some of the attorneys around here. They, they, oh. they, they yeah. So that's so, very uh, good. But, anyhow, so that's my medieval connection. So we say. Medieval. And it's well. interesting. I was in, and the funny thing is, it must have been already in me when I was in Rome getting my district, getting my license, because my topic for for the my license paper was the proofs for impotence in the Middle Ages. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so, on behalf of the CLSA, I want to. Uh, express to you how grateful we are. Um, Thank you, we, uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we will we will see you and talk to you sometime here in the in the future. And uh, may the may all of us appreciate what the rule of law, especially as canonists, and and how it fits in with uh, the salvation of souls. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yes, <laughs> Amen. Take care, my senior. Be with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Take care. It's good talking to you. Okay. Good talking bye -bye. to you. Bye bye. Thank you.